From the Jesuits of Canada and the United States, this is AMDG. I'm Mike Jordan-Lasky. When a draft opinion by Justice Samuel Alito overturning Roe v. Wade was leaked last month, the person I most wanted to talk to was Gloria Purvis. Gloria is the host of The Gloria Purvis Show, a podcast produced by American Media. She's also a longtime pro-life advocate and one of the most outspoken Catholic commentators on racism. As reported a couple of years ago in other outlets, it was Gloria's focus on racism in the wake of the killings of Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, and George Floyd that got her EWTN-sponsored radio show canceled in 2020. The way Gloria ties these two justice issues together in particular is so impressive to me. One common temptation for American Catholics is to try to fit our faith's teachings into the platform of our preferred political party. There's no perfect match. For Catholics on both sides of the aisle, it's often the case that party affiliation is a stronger predictor than church teaching for where we'll come down on issues like abortion, racism, immigration, economic justice, physician-assisted suicide, and so many others. Gloria is a refreshing exception to this trend. As she told me in our interview, she's not a Democrat or a Republican, she's a Catholic. You can't fit her on our partisan spectrum. We spoke last week about both of these central issues to her, racism and abortion, and why they're connected, and how she handles the vitriol and hate mail sent her way from all sides. You can subscribe to AMDG wherever you get podcasts. And thanks for joining us. Well, Gloria Purvis, welcome to AMDG. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk. How are you? I'm great. I'm so glad to be talking with you today. Hopefully people can understand where I'm coming from and all these issues. And so I appreciate the opportunity. Yeah. So I invited you on because I think you are really one of the most important voices in the church, period. Um, I've followed your work for for a number of years now, and I just found you to be this like, a really powerful witness to our, I think I would call it like our Catholic, our consistent ethic of life. Uh, especially in the ways that you speak out about the injustices of uh, racism and abortion. And um, those are big, broad issues, things we don't usually discuss in polite company. But I just love the way that you are willing to kind of confront them with clarity. And uh, yeah, I don't know, just really, I think, bringing the best of the Catholic tradition to some of these these top big uh, issues. And And I invited you on because we know that there's been this leaked opinion uh, around Roe v. Wade, and there's a good chance that within the next few weeks, we might be living in a post-Roe America. So I wanted to ask you, okay, so what does that mean for us? But then also, uh, since I invited you this past weekend, just a few days ago, there was the uh, the, the shooting uh, at a Buffalo supermarket, uh, an 18-year-old white man clearly motivated by racist ideology uh, going and intentionally picking a, a, a supermarket in a, in a black neighborhood in Buffalo. And big questions for us about racism in the country and then how as a church we respond to those things so there's a lot here to, to talk about and maybe just start for you as someone again who um had done a lot of work in these kind of two issue areas how are those broad issue areas how are they connected for you oh 
Well, first of all, thank you. Um, wow, what a what a compliment. <laughs> I'm the most, I don't know, I'm just a voice, but thank you. Um, I, they're connected because fundamentally these are issues of human dignity. The dignity of human person is core for those who uh, want to protect life in the womb and those who are concerned about the sin of racism. I mean, that's that's what makes these matters connected. I, I like to say that racism, you know, being against racism and being pro-life are twin sisters, identical twins, right? So they aren't competitors. And I think that's where people end up falling down is they think you can't be both. And the reason they think they can't be both is because they've boiled these down to merely political issues and associated them with political parties instead of seeing them through the lens of the gospel, which we as Catholics should. Is there, uh, speaking of the gospel, are there, where in the tradition do you find that kind of inspiration or, or things that you point people toward maybe if they're, they're struggling, uh, other, whether it's uh, in the, the gospel itself or in our kind of church teaching, are there, are there places you turn to for? Well, I would say for me, it began with in the Old Testament in Genesis 1:26, let us make man in our image and likeness. And and that actually is something that I meditate on quite a bit. The fact that we are all not just some, not just the precious perfect, <laughs> you know, the sin-free, the likable are made in the image of God. It's everybody, you know. It's the very people that society would have us cast out, right? It's um, the person who may be addicted to drugs. It's the person who um, maybe what people call a prostitute. It's the person who may have mental health challenges. It's the person who is just unlikable because they're just rude Karens or whatever, right? Is what people say. But they too are made in the image and likeness of God and are worthy of dignity and respect because of that. And I mean, that's something for us to really meditate on as believers because it challenges us to love everyone, especially those whom we don't like, right? Um, now, that's just not to say that every person, th th you know, we all made in the image and likeness of God, and oftentimes we behave beneath that. We behave beneath our dignity, right? And I think that's the challenge for us is to recognize when we behave beneath our dignity and call ourselves to love people even when they behave beneath their dignity. And... Um, that's where I begin to remind people how God made us and who we are. And because also we have a common ancestor, God, that means we're family. We're one family. And I think we just need to, as believers, really meditate on that and let that motivate us and let that be our basis from which we act. Um, because I often think that's so forgotten. And I, and I want to remind people that throughout our history, particularly in the United States, I mean, you can look at it in the world, but particularly in the United States with regard to the sin of racism, we have rebelled against God's word, against his plan for us. We have made in law, custom, you know, practice that black people specifically are less than white people. I mean, this is not, this is, and this is completely 100% against God's word of who we are. And I think the repercussions and the ripple effects of that rebellion from God's word is still with us today. 
So maybe we could back up for a second and sure. let folks who might not be familiar with your work know a little bit about your background and, and kind of how you came in uh, into this work and, and uh, hosting a podcast and the, the media work and the a- activism work that you do. And yeah, just maybe introduce yourself to our, our listeners. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's so funny. I think about how did I end up here? And it was totally by accident. I never intended to do any of this you know, I never intended to be in media. I never intended to evangelize or share in this way. You know, my my background actually is in financial risk management. I had a a good career in that. And um, God made a way for me to stay home. (laughs) You know, at some point in my career, I was able to walk away from it and stay home and raise a child and all the while that I was in corporate America, I was still doing, you know, outreach. I was working with my husband actually in our parish, teaching natural family planning, uh, working with the young adult ministry, helping grow that out, uh, and working with the pro life ministry. In fact, at our parish at the time, my husband and I were like, "Why is the pro life ministry and the social justice ministry separate?" So we combined them. It was like we're one ministry. It's it's all a social justice issue. And that was out of our naivete. We didn't know that in the church in the United States that there was this, you know, specific divide. And we just thought, that's ridiculous. This is all together. And so we, but when we saw, when we did this, we saw people coming together that didn't agree on these issues. We were like, hold up, hold up, hold up. This is what the church teaches. So we ended up then doing a lot of workshops and seminars on what the church teaches on all these issues. And then it got bigger outside of our parish to other parishes that had young adult uh, organizations. And I would go around from church to church in the Archdiocese of Washington talking about these issues, um, talking specifically about abortion actually in black parishes. Um, And it just sort of grew and then getting invitations outside the Archdiocese of Washington to come and speak, um, doing uh, video interviews, and it just grew and grew. And I'd already been having these same kind of conversations on my job, too, which is wild. But I would always have, you know, I would say to the Lord, look, if I get fired, you're paying my mortgage. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> I was like, you know, I need this job. I need this money to pay this mortgage. So if I get fired because somebody asked me about you or I hear something being said about you and I say something, you gotta, you know, you gotta have my back. And here's the funny thing, Mike. <laughs> I kept getting promoted and promoted and promoted. So it was wild. So I found myself like working with the board of directors and the the C-suite executives. And whenever faith issues would come up, I would say something. And I just knew for sure I'd get bounced. But it didn't happen. It's weird. Well, it's God. That's all I can say. <laughs> So you would say you worked in risk management, which is yeah. interesting background because you are you kind of weighed into risky places a lot now. <laughs> yeah. uh, and again, and bringing like some of the just challenging issues, especially in the church, which might not be too excited to to face them. Yeah. Um, so I we can start with uh, well, maybe again thinking about the Roe v. Wade decision. Oh yeah. Um, and this opinion that's come out and again something that in the pro-life movement but working for for a long time right like this is the goal let's get roe v wade overturned and then we can move from there and sometimes it seemed like i would come to the march for life and you would see like that's we're going to the supreme court that's what we're focused on yeah and like and i'm sure at the same time people were thinking okay what's next after this but at the same time it was such like this fixation now that it's changing oh yeah 
I, what's, the, what's next is the big oh, question. Yeah. And so for me, just for you as someone who's been in this, what was your reaction? What have been your reactions and reflections since you saw that uh, opinion leak? Okay, so the leak, I was like, that's a lie. Ain't no way. <laughs> I was like, somebody lying. And then when I saw that the SCOTUS Public Affairs Office confirmed that it was authentic, I was like, okay. Well, let me just, for our listeners, let me clarify, abortion hasn't gone away in the United States. It's just that it has now returned to the States. And in the Alito op- opinion, which I read, you know, he says this is an issue for the people and their representatives to work out. It was never something that was supposed to be brought at the Supreme Court. And he goes through the legal flaws of Roe. He also goes through, because there's a lot of um, misinformation out there about, oh, my gosh, if they could do this, can they overturn the women's right to vote? And I'm like, that's a constitutional amendment. No, I can't, (laughs) you know. Um, But he talks about other precedents that have, you know, overturned previous decisions, like Brown versus Board of Education overturned precedent. And he talks about also why other things are different than Roe. Other precedents are different than Roe. And so it's it's a decent read. And so there's a lot of hyperbole and fear-mongering that's just not based in any truth. The fact is, it's going to go back to each individual state to decide whether or not uh, they're going to have legal abortion, if it is, under what, for how long, under what circumstance, all that stuff. And so Maryland, D.C., Connecticut, New York, California, you know, a number of states, of, yeah, still have it fully legal. Um, and so the, the question really is, for all of us listening, what do we really want to say about the human person, the human family, the woman, the child? What really are our values? And I think we need a complete sea change because abortion is one of those systems of oppression for women. It, it upholds our own oppression. It has been a reason, I believe, that we don't have the things that we really need for women in, a, in society. It's why we're still talking about paid family leave. It's why we're talking about um, maternal mortality rates still being very high for the African-American community. You know, abortion has basically been a way for us to sidestep root causes of problems for women. Um, it, it's been a, an exit ramp. And I think when that's no longer on the table, we could really get down to brass tacks about what women really need. And I think it's a wholesale, a sea change really about our attitudes and perceptions of work, of women's participation in the economy, in education, in the church, all of it. Because right now, our society is really patterned after maleness, you know, and for women to have abortion, uh, it makes us the perfect male worker with no attachments, you know, no no mothering, no pregnancy, none of that. And I think that's absolutely wrong. Uh, it's the it's the wrong pattern. It's the wrong way of seeing things. Yeah. So sometimes I think a criticism like levied at the pro-life movement, I think sometimes fairly, sometimes not so fairly, is that there's only a concern for life in the womb, but then once a child is born, uh, that concern stops. Um, And so I, you kind of mentioned a couple of these areas in which I think we could focus on maybe in which to make sure that like that choice for life is supported. So you, again, you mentioned like paid family leave or uh, again, looking at maternal, um, mortality rates. Let me just say this, Mike, I find when people say that to a way sort of funny because 
let's look at Planned Parenthood, for example. They don't offer anything post-childbirth. <laughs> you know, they are only really, as their main moneymaker, concerned with terminating the life of that child, period. That's their the, the backbone of their business model. That is their moneymaker. Sure, people say, oh, they offer this or that. And I'm like, no, they don't. I mean, they'll refer you out someplace or maybe they'll have somebody come in that's not related to PP. But even if that were the case, what they may offer is not proportionate to the grave moral evil that they commit. Now, in terms of pro-life is only caring, you know, I hear that a lot. Um, just, you know, once you're born, they don't care. And that's really um, some friends of mine, uh, Helen Alvarez, wrote an article a while back called The Lazy Slander of the Pro-Life Movement, which I'll send to you. Maybe you can link to it. And it, and it explains how really the Catholic Church um, has been the number one non-governmental service provider in the United States. And this notion that we don't care after the child born is born is just not true. For example, in the Archdiocese of Washington, uh, well, this is before the child's born, they provide insurance for pregnant mothers in need for that prenatal care. And then you, I'm on the board of a maternity home and pregnancy center where we will help the mother and the family pretty much for up to two years after the child is born. And then we try to link them in with other services and stuff that are available. It's just, it's just not true that um, people, that the pro-life movement, and I look at that as mainly the Catholic Church, uh, doesn't care after the child's born because you look at all the wraparound services the church does indeed provide. But um, I, I think that people need to look more closely at the pro-abortion movement for what they provide outside of abortion. And I think they'll find themselves in a place where it's very lacking what they provide. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I, I No, I totally agree with that and see the church um, providing a lot of those things. And I think putting their money with their mouth is in a lot of ways that don't get covered. But I also think like when it comes to, so there's the NGO support in which we support those families. And as a yeah. church, I think we have to do that. But then it's also the systems, right? Looking at systems and changing them so that um, it's not just onto falling onto these churches and nonprofits yeah. that are already completely strapped, right? That it, right. it's that we're putting this into law, um, that we're, you know, that we're, whether it's kind of just like yeah. a guaranteed in, uh, universal income, which the Pope has talked about, or mm -hmm. uh, like the childhood tax credit, uh, the child tax credit that had been involved in the, um, was part of the kind of pandemic relief bill, but has now expired, which were direct payments to families monthly with kit for their kids. Yeah. Um, public all those policy. things, yeah, you yeah are the public policy public changes. policy changes need to happen. That only happens if our listeners advocate. That only happens if our listeners vote. That only happens if our listeners really do care. Now, sure, there are going to be some people say, that's not the jo job of the government. That's our job. True. I would say it's all of our jobs. It's the community's job, right? Um, and so this is where, um, frankly, people have a, a difference of opinion on who's responsible. And I'm like, we're all responsible. Yeah, I guess the, one of the questions I'm, I'm getting at is something I've wrestled with and wonder if you feel this way is that like we do seem to have like, in, at least in our political binary in the US, you have one party that would have people who are fighting for the legal recognition of the life of a you know of an unborn child and wanting mm -hmm. to protect that right and then mm -hmm. maybe the other party would be more uh open to you know things like single-payer health care in which it wouldn't matter like if you were insured or not and or things like uh yeah. the paid family leave mm -hmm. um so you can be easy to to feel kind of politically homeless like not oh, quite yeah. fitting in is that an experience you've had oh yeah neither party no party fully 
represents what I value, right? And I think it's super important now, you know, in the face of Roe falling, um, and even if it doesn't fall, I still think we need to have a lot of pressure on the Republicans to have pro-family policies. And I think we still need to keep up the pressure on the Democrats to have pro-life policies. You know, our work is not done. Um, And so, yeah, no, we have to keep up the pressure, keep up the pressure, keep up the pressure, not allow ourselves to be distracted by other talking points of either party. Yeah, I I, I don't know. I feel like I saw... Uh, Simca Fisher, who's a writer for America as well, mm-hmm. was talking about like kind of be working for this and the pro-life cause for a long time. But now, like in this climate uh, of distrust and polarization uh, within the church, within the, the country, that it's almost like when Roe comes down that like, oh, you you bought your dream house uh, finally. But oh, guess what? It's haunted. Yeah. <laughs> I think it was like one of her, her tweets. And like so mm-hmm. for you, again, seeing the end of Roe, like what are some of the like emotions or, or reflections again you've had? Is it is it like a fully positive? This is a, a great. It is like yeah, a great civil I, justice, look, civil rights win. But yeah, I think it's. I'm fully positive because I think it, abortion is an a, just a grave evil, and one layer of getting it removed and jettisoned for us from our society is a good thing, and so I understand that things aren't perfect, and I'm okay with that. I, I'm happy that this grave evil, if Roe is overturned. It's gone from that level uh, in federal policy from our from our country, right? Um, to now say that you know it's not a constitutional right is fantastic. I mean, yes, that's like somebody asking me if I'd be all right if slavery, in my opinion, is gone. But you know, we've got all these other problems. I was like, I don't care about those other problems. This grave evil is gone. I'm going to rejoice in that. Granted, we need other things, but we won't, aren't going to let perfection be the enemy of the good, right? So I'm happy that some level of this abortion regime, which is completely unjust, which oppresses women, is gone. Some level of it is gone, yay. Now we got to get to work at the next step, you know, at the states. And we have to get to, to work, honestly, on helping people have the, to love creatively, you know, everything looks impossible till we try, right? Let, let's think about it. If before the pon- pandemic, all these businesses never believed that working remotely could work. Well, our situation forced us so that now the concept's been proven. Yeah, it can work. People can work remotely. And I kind of think we need to have a pregnancy pandemic, you know, where we could see that, you know what? Yeah, our world can work with a bunch of pregnant women and uh, mothering women that we can do this. We may do things differently than we had before, but it can work. Yeah, what I know one thing I hear from uh, an argument I hear sometimes, even within Catholic quarter, certainly, maybe people who would say, oh, well, I'm generally kind of personally pro-life, but uh, if you were to make this illegal, then um, it's not going to stop them all and it will just stop safe abortions and people will still have them and still seek them out. And I hear that uh, all the time. And then for me, I always think like then about like gun control, for instance, right? Like. I think that's always often the argument uh, about gun control here. It's like, oh, well, you can make guns more like have more restrictions, but people, the bad people, will still find them. It's like, okay, like maybe that's that's true, but like for for one, like making saying something is wrong and saying that it is wrong uh, is good, and that like while not perfect, a law like that, a prohibition, um, can have an impact. Um, but I do think sometimes there are arguments that we might use in one area we we don't want to use. Yeah, uh, well, this abortion. whole thing that people are still going to do bad. Okay, that's the case for every law. <laughs> what we're trying to get across is some values to society, right? 
that we do not that we do not want women to to undertake that kind of violence upon their bodies and the bodies of their children right um and we want we under abortion should be something that's abhorrent and unthinkable in our country and that's where what we're trying to say we value women too much to allow them to undergo that kind of violence and we want to whereas women and and, and you, let's let's be honest for sex it the um, the effects are asymmetrical for men and women women get pregnant men don't um women are encumbered by pregnancy and childbearing and child rearing men are not necessarily and so we need to instead of trying to say women be like men and let's unencumber you from something that's natural to your body uh, we need to encumber men we need to make them more accountable and encumbered to the women with whom they create children and the ch and also the children they've helped create um, I think the idea that well women are still going to go out and get abortions is a weak argument for let's still allow abortions and I also think it's a it's um we're playing with the, um, we're playing with the truth that we say abortion is safe it really isn't the physical and psychological harm to women is clear. Um, they often don't talk about the um, damage to the cervix that could happen from multiple abortions. You can get a weak cervix, which impacts your ability to have children in the future. Um, you can have perforated uteruses. You can get sepsis from them not getting everything. I, just a whole number of things. And I think of Tanya Reeves, who died outside of a Planned Parenthood after having an abortion. Just a terrible thing. And the idea that abortion is safe, I think of all the psychological damage of abortion. I don't know one woman that's had an abortion that, that doesn't remember the date. And if it's such a thing that's so liberatory and fantastic, why do they remember the date with such clarity? Because it's a trauma. It's a trauma. And, um, and I'm upset about that. I'm upset that women have been manipulated to believe the lie that if you have an abortion, everything can go back to like it was before, and they find out that's not true. And that's upsetting to me that women have been taken advantage of in this way to believe this lie and also believe this makes you more free. No, it doesn't. It is. This is not freedom. This is an abuse of our power um, to do this to the woman and to the most vulnerable in her womb, her child. Just no, no. I just no. Mm -mm. I think of so, some of the ways in which uh, the violence and trauma of abortion connect to the violence and trauma of racism. And some of the stats I was looking at recently, where they like kind of studied racial and ethnic data in terms of abortion. That black women accounted for thirty-eight percent of abortions, white mm -hmm. women for thirty-three percent, Hispanic women for twenty-one percent. Mm -hmm. And so you see this disparity, and uh, that looks, and you can see that against. Um, you know, socioeconomic uh, ranges as well. That seems, again, is something that, why is that the case? Um, and so do you see, again, those those things as lived out as more of these connections between uh, racist structures and, oh, yeah. and uh, I mean, the disrespect for life? Sure, look, it's no secret that abortion clinics have positioned themselves in black communities, you know? Um, it's no secret for those who are aware that 
people push abortion on the black community, on black women as a solution. Like, oh, you know, you're already poor. You're this, you're that. Or And there's a stigma also with, with having children out of wedlock. You know, um, there at least for black women. <laughs> I mean, I could talk about myself. Ivy League graduate going in for a job interview, and this man asked me how many children I had. Illegal question. And I was, and I answered it by saying, "I'm not married." That's how I answered it. And he looked shocked and embarrassed after he asked it. And um, although a friend of mine in HR said you should tell him like six kids, and then if you don't get the job, sue the heck out of the company, <laughs> something like that. But um, just there's so much wrapped up with having a child in difficult circumstances, right? And the black community has been targeted, frankly, by the abortion industry to make sure that abortion is an option for us, whereas the very things that we need, safe housing, affordable housing, uh, access to, to healthy food in our communities, job training, all the things that we actually want aren't. And that's the, uh, my other issue. Abortion is put as a solution for the black community while doing nothing to address the material, material conditions that would make people think abortion is the solution to their problem. It, it doesn't change anything materially about their condition. An abused woman going into an abortion facility comes out an abused woman without a child. That's mm. it. Yeah, I saw you, you put on I think posted on Twitter recently. Uh, the the mayor of of Washington D.C. went to like to like a public housing yeah. facility to kind of tout uh, a new you know, free Wi-Fi program, and got like a handwritten letter handed to her. Like this is great, but what we really need are like a safe place to live, and we yeah. have mold issues and they're just unsafe Flying facilities, cockroaches, yeah. rats. It, it was it was horrible when you read about the conditions, and I'm like, but this is the very community that pro-choice, although they don't call themselves pro-choice anymore, the new language is pro-abortion, that the pro-abortion regime targets as needing abortion. It, it'll, it's, it's, a, it's liberatory. It makes them free. It empowers. I'm like, it does none of that. It does none of that. I do want to ask some about your work in the, the past couple of years, really kind of lifting up uh, questions about racism and anti-racism and racism within the church and within mm -hmm. society. And, and I imagine you had people who followed your career and with your kind of your pro-life background. And then um, when, especially after the, the killing of murder of George Floyd, uh, started lifting up some Black Lives Matter mm -hmm. uh, questions and perspectives and then uh, challenged, I'm sure challenged people. And I was wondering for you, like what that experience has been like, uh, how have you found <laughs> success or challenge or, or both in terms of inviting members of our church who might not have thought about uh, racism before in a, like a really oh, yeah. clear way, like to, to really confront those things. Like, so what, you know. I think people who had been following me all that time had a misconception about who I am. Um, like, I think for some reason they assume that when you're pro-life, the things that they consider leftist wouldn't, you know, that you wouldn't be concerned about it. And they have a completely wrong view of me. I'm not to look at me from the perspective of a political view of left or right or of progressive or conservative or Republican or Democrat was a flawed view. I'm Catholic, fully so. And um, so I think when I started speaking about first Ahmaud Arbery, right, um, and then George Floyd happened, you know, talking about that had people going, wait a minute, she's not supposed to talk about that. She's stepping off the script. She's, you know... And I was like, "You're no, I, this is what it means to be pro-life. This is what it means to understand human dignity, to care about the human person. 
Um, and so it was it was quite shocking for that group of people who've been following me for a while, knowing I was very outspoken about about um, the dignity of women and the dignity of the child in the womb. And somehow that didn't translate to them to talk about the dignity of the human person when they're in police custody, to talk about the role of policing, what just policing would look like, um, and the role of the sin of racism. I think it really shocked people when I called racism a sin, which it is. Um, that seemed to get people like buzzing that I called racism a sin. And that was very surprising to me because I'm like, well, yeah, clearly it is. It's, it's a diabolical life in the pit of hell. It's clearly, you know, against God's word. Now, here's the thing. I think also people had such a narrow definition of racism that it's only, you know, when you call someone a racial slur when it's not. I mean, people know how to speak in code now, but it has the same racist intent as if you were using a racial slur. The whole point of racism is to treat the human person as if they're not human, they're beneath you, that they're not made in the image and likeness of God, that they don't have the same royal dignity as, for example, in the United States, white people. And, and that's just a lie. We need to contend with the ways in which that lie is still lived out and spread today. And that brings us to Buffalo, right? <laughs> yeah, no, certainly. And just for, from your perspective, like, how is the church doing at confronting racism? What more could we be doing? Um, and not just the church in terms of like the bishops and the pope, that's important, right. but just us as, as uh, people in the pews. Well, I think we need to have a more um, laser focus on it. Like, I, I remember watching a, and I normally don't call names, but I'm going to say this because this person is well-known and there are homilies out there. I saw the most racist homily during Mass preached by Father Altman on lynching. It was horrible. I watched that and I thought, this happened during Mass? It, it's, it's, it was just racism on full blast without him ever using a racial slur. But people can't, people have been so conditioned that they don't even see how deeply racist and evil what he was saying was. Um, I, it was, it was odious. There's no other way to describe it. And the fact that that, that video still exists and, and, and has been promoted by people who call themselves evangelizers in the faith. I mean, it's, it's just scandalous. Um, so I think we need to do a better job in the church of helping people become sensitized to this grave evil. Um, I think it is, it is so, we are so conditioned that we don't even see it unless it's Bull Connor, you know what I mean? The most extreme, unless it's this white racist murderer out of Buffalo. Uh, but there is racism just in the way in which people interact with each other and talk to each other, the fact that they could look at the, there was, what, a couple of years ago, the interaction in Central Park between two people with the last name, a black man and a white woman over her having her dog where it wasn't supposed to be. That was clearly racist, the interaction that she was going to use the police to get her way. And all she had to do was call and say, a black man is threatening me. And people missed that. That was an example of somebody weaponizing racism in a very concrete way that could have cost that man his life because we know that in encounters with police where the black person is seen as a dangerous criminal subject, they very well may lose their life. 
As opposed to with the murderer in South Carolina some years ago who murdered nine black people in church, Dylan Roof, taken in safely. This guy in Buffalo taken in safely, even though they had committed mass murders. Yeah, and I think, too, about like you know the, the kind of faith perspective on social sin is that it's not only these individual acts, but that we've kind of codified racism into our structures. You talked oh, yeah. about again a lack of housing, or even something again like the uh, abortion rates in in black communities, uh, or well, things I like just, maternal mortality. So I rate just in black tweeted about um, Freddie Mac, which is one of the, uh, one of the um, federal home loan mortgage corporation known as Freddie Mac. It um it um helps keep the housing market liquid. I won't get into all that. But anyway, Freddie Mac just released in September of last year a study on appraisal bias because there had been numerous articles in the press about black people getting these crazy low appraisal rates. But then when they take everything out of the home that shows that anybody black lives there and it looks like maybe white people live there, their value goes up tremendously. So they did a study and they said, indeed, yes, black and Hispanic homes are valued lower than the purchase price more than so for white homes. And they found that the blacker, the census tract, the area where the people is, the more likely there is a gap. And then they even said, well, is it just a small number of appraisers doing this? And their study found, no, why a large number of appraisers are doing this. And they were like, we don't know the root causes. And I'm like, hmm. but we'll keep studying it and maybe come up with some alternatives. So, you know, just baked into even trying to buy a home is some bias, right? Is is some bias. And people say, well, we don't know why. Well, you know, okay. Part of it we understand could be just the perception if it's black, you know, in a black area that it's less than, you know? So we have a lot of things to contend with from the legacy of racism. And of course, they're going to be legacy of um, slavery, this great, horrible sin on our country. And I'm sure there are going to be some people say, oh, how could that still be the case? Nobody challenges that it's still the case that we're affected by original sin. Hmm. <laughs> I mean, why would it be the case that we wouldn't be impacted today still by the sin of racism? I'm just curious for you before I let you go, just again, mm. thinking of um, these often kind of different audiences you're in and oh, yeah. uh, talking to a whole bunch of, of different people. And um, are there ways you have found that have when you've gotten through to people like are, I'm trying to think of someone again for you who is like living in that tension, right? Like the tension that if you looked at it just from a purely political point of view, you are not at home anywhere, yeah. as we talked about earlier. And even within the church, sometimes not quite at home anywhere. And have there been ways in which you found like this is how because I know we're so polarized that it can be yeah. hard even to talk to each other. Are, are there things, ways that you've done having a lot of these conversations where you've seen some movement, people willing to kind of consider something in a, in a new way? Uh, what has been your experience uh, trying to do that? Hmm. Well, you know, I have to talk about things in terms that people understand. So like depends like in certain areas I could talk. They could see the racism and abortion, right? to help those groups then see that it exists outside of just the sliver of life that they deal with on abortion that exists outside of that. But what happens a lot of times is that people feel like they don't like when the mirror is being held up. You mean I'm in need of conversion? So what happens is sometimes people need more humility. You know, they're so used to telling other people how they're wrong and they need to repent that it is shocking to them that they might need to repent as well. 
And so I think sometimes that's a seduction of either people who are strictly seeing racism as the gravest evil or abortion as the gravest evil. They then no longer see their need for repentance and conversion, and we all need it, right? And so, um, you know, there is that difficulty. And I'm not so much trying to measure, um, honestly, if I see movement. I've just got to say what's the truth. And people have to decide for themselves. Um, you know, I can only throw the seeds. They can make their ground fertile or not and receptive to the seed. Um, but I have to still speak it. And I get a lot of pushback. I get a lot of hate mail, a lot of threats. Um, and um, all I could do is go try to lay out the truth and try to draw the connections for them. But what it's interesting to see how people's minds work, particularly when Black Lives, you know, around Black Lives Matter, um, just this obstinate refusal to deal with why Black Lives Matter exists. You know, instead, they wanted to focus on one small organization and what they saw as the imperfections or evils that this organization promoted. I'm like, but they're not the movement. Nobody's saying you have to join this this organization by the name Black Lives Matter. I'm not saying that, but you do have to say something and do something and be involved in these grave sins against black people in our country. And in particular, in this case, violence by the state, by paid agents of the state, violence in policing against black people. And I try to help people see that just like they don't want the abortion regime to be legalized and paid for by the state, subsidized by the state, they should not want violence against black people being carried out by the state, right? Um, and, you know, there's this, but policing is good. Police is good. And I was like, but you need to see that these actions are abuses of police power. They are an abuse of the public trust who have given police an illegal authority to police. And they're not using that legal authority appropriately. They're, they're abusing the public trust. They're violating the public trust. And it's an evil. So even getting people to see police brutality as an evil has been a hard thing. And, and a part of that is racist conditioning, because when you believe that and in, in, in associate blackness with, you know, um, all the negative things, the opposite of virtue, you associate blackness with criminality, laziness. Um, um, what's the word I'm looking for? When you associate it with promiscuity, all of these things, everything evil and bad then in your mind, you know, well, that's the kind of strong policing that's need for that kind of animal-like community. And you're also used to the brutalization of black bodies because you don't associate them as your own and in your family. So people could watch, and, and I, I will tell you this, I, I had this experience. People can watch George Floyd's murder, and instead of empathizing with him, they were like, well, what did he do? Like, he must have done something to deserve that. No human person deserves that what he experienced and so people could watch that and and not be traumatized by it but already in their mind were like he must have done something to deserve that and it's because blackness has been equated with evil has been equated with criminality and 
so they, they there has to be so in their minds there's obviously some justification for him being treated like this rather than seeing that that is a gross abuse of policing and a gross human rights abuse they just don't see it and this is from centuries of social conditioning due to that first lie that we encoded in law that said that black people were not human and they were fit for ownership they were only to be chattel slaves so, I mean, we just, it's, it's much more complex than what I'm saying right now. But I saw that in the responses to the George Floyd video. And in fact, all walks of people, lay, lay and religious, wrote me sharing the video, saying, hey, what do you think about, well, not that video, a video commenting on it. Hey, what do you think about this video commentary? And the video commentary was this woman basically saying the most anti-gospel things about George Floyd. And I was like, this is odious. And if you're pro-life, how could you not have detected that? And they couldn't detect it because they had been conditioned by racism. Mm. But I could see it right. It was the most disgusting video by this woman who, it was like she was, it was almost like an incantation of evil that people fell under her sway because they've already been conditioned by the sin of racism. I guess just like finally though, like in the face of, you know, you're saying you're hearing hate mail or uh, receiving oh, yeah. that and like, what, what keeps you, what keeps you going again? These are challenging times and challenging things you're doing. Uh, I guess, you know, what keeps me going? Hmm. Well, I actually have a very happy life, <laughs> I'm a very happy person. I'm so positive. I have, I love my husband, my child. I'm just a very happy disposition, a very positive disposition. Um, I'm a third order Carmelite, so you know prayer is very, very helpful, and that meditating um, is very helpful. Um, and maybe it's just how I've been reared. I mean, I'm a black woman from the South, so I grew up understanding life wasn't easy. And also coming from a middle class background, you know, having you know a grandfather that was a doctor, um, you know, all my everybody in our family's married. I just had a very high opinion, a very good self-esteem from my parents and believed that I could do any anything. And a belief in God that told me I could do anything in his name for his glory. And um, so when the unpleasantness and the encounters with evil happen, I, I know who I can go back to. I can go back to the Lord in my little cell inside myself and, and be with him. And I also understand that carrying my cross means just that. It's a cross. It's not going to be raincoats and unicorns and lollipops. It just isn't. You know, and if I love Jesus Christ and I say I want to live my life in allegiance to him, then how can I expect not to have to follow him and carry my cross and, and being on the cross? Um, granted, he hasn't blessed me in that way that I will suffer like that of actually being on the cross with him. I, I think the love in my heart is not there yet to be able to sustain and bear that. Um, and so he allows me small tastes, small tastes, small sufferings. You know, some people might think they're big, but honestly, in, in comparison to what our Lord endured, they're very, very, very small. And that's really more because my love for him is not where it needs to be where I can carry the bigger crosses. So I, while I don't like the cross, I also understand it's a part of the walk as a mature believer. Um, 
And, and, and I have, sometimes he's given me a really big cross and I've had to give it back to him. And I had to go in humility and say, Lord, my heart is not there. I don't love you enough to be able to carry this cross. And I think sometimes he did that to me so that I could realize my heart is not there. I don't love him enough yet to be able to bear enormous crosses. And so he gives me with my, what my little heart and my little love can bear. And hopefully over time, my love can grow so that I can have union with him. I mean, that's kind of the goal of a Carmelite to pray and seek union to seek God's face, but I'm not there yet. So I'm just walking along my path, um, asking him to help me get there and realizing that all the unpleasantness, all the evil, all the attacks are par for the course, but still, um, you know, um, what makes them sweet is knowing they're in his will, you know, that I'm doing his will. That makes them sweeter. And also praying then for the people who do these things because the Lord is showing me the, the brokenness of these individual souls. Sometimes he shows me some brokenness in society and it's, I'm not going to, it's, it's hard, Mike. That part is hard when you, when you see evil, when you see people ensnared by the traps of the devil, um, it's it's difficult, and uh, you know I ask him for for help, and I sometimes just go sit and wait, and and I think that's a part of um, I, I don't know how to describe it other than that I'm able to go interiorly and just sit and wait, wait on him, to come, to shed some light, to whatever it is, but I make myself available to him and just wait, and I carry these things and I give it right, offer it over to him. And I give these souls to him because sometimes when you asked me earlier, there's a, the word. Sometimes there is no word for these people. Sometimes it's only prayer and fasting. And when you get these attacks, you realize these are the souls that need prayer and fasting. And um, this is when you go back to um, remembering all of us are made in God's image and likeness, especially the people who are attacking you, especially people who spew the most vile things. They are made in his image and likeness. And look how far they've fallen from that truth of how they don't even know their own great dignity because they behave so far beneath it. How do we help them remember who they are? Mm. So, Well, Gloria Purvis, thank you so much for <laughs> taking this time and for your your witness and uh, just so uh, grateful for you and um, for all you're doing. And we'll make sure to link to uh, the Gloria Purvis podcast from Please American do. Media and um, can, can find you also on Twitter. We'll link to you there. And Thanks. Um, yeah, and again, just thank you so much for the for the time and for all you continue to do. Oh, thank you, Mike. And I'm going to ask everybody to please continue to pray for me as I pray for everybody that's listening today. Thank you so much. AMDG is a production of the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the United States. And when we're not working from home, the show is recorded at our headquarters in Washington, D.C., AMDG is edited by Marcus Bleach, and our theme music is by Kevin Lasky. The Jesuit Conference communications team is Marcus Bleach, Eric Clayton, Megan Leepsch, Becky Sindelar, and me. Connect with the Jesuits online at jesuits.org, on Twitter at Jesuit News, Instagram at WeAreTheJesuits, and Facebook.com slash Jesuits. Sign up for weekly email reflections by visiting jesuits.org weekly. 
If you or someone you know might be called to discern a vocation to the Jesuits, connect with the Jesuit vocation promoter at beajesuit.org. Drop us an email with questions or comments at media at jesuits.org. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as St. Ignatius of Loyola may or may not have said, go and set the world on fire. <laughs>